speaking on two topics, independence and liberty. But not about America, but about the scriptural statements about liberty and freedom um, and independence. But I decided not to. It was very tempting. I was looking at a variety of passages and just thinking about this would be kind of fun to do something a little bit different um, and at the same time um, to spend time speaking about what's really important. <clears throat> and some of that is just the provocative thing in me, you know, because I just, it, it aggravates, I'll be honest with you, it aggravates me when I see or I hear or see pastors uh, preaching on Independence Day on July 4th or in that, that holiday weekend and they're preaching about America and, and, uh, and themes of independence and, and talking about how we are blessed by God for this reason or that reason or another reason. I'm always troubled by those things because it seems to me like we're always taking liberties with the scriptures in dramatic ways and we're equating the kingdom of man with the kingdom of God way too tightly. And I think it's a very, very dangerous thing to do. Um, but anyway, I thought it'd be kind of fun to do that kind of a provocative yet encouraging study, but I want instead to instead continue in our study in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. So we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5, looking at verses 21 through 26. I'm sorry, 27 through 30. Sorry. <clears throat> 27 through 30. Uh, in reality, uh, 27 through 30, that I would argue... The context flows all the way through chapter 5, verse 32. Uh, typically, in most biblical texts, the non-inspired divisions uh, disconnect 27 from, through 30 from 30 and 31. I do not think they should be disconnected from each other. They're both based upon the seventh commandment. They are very, I would argue, very strongly interwoven together, both sections. But we've separated them out, verses th uh, 27 through 30. Uh, the heading in my Bible says lust, and 31, 32, the heading says divorce. As if the, the, in Jesus' way of thinking, the discussions are two different arguments. And I would, again, present to you they are not. He's addressing the seventh commandment again. And the seventh commandment very clearly is evidenced throughout the text. But... I've decided just to focus on 27 through 30 this morning because, frankly, simply because of time. If I'm going to get into 31 and 32, that time that I would need to, to carefully work through 31 and 32 probably would take too much time that we have time for today because certainly you want to get home and enjoy your hot dogs and hamburgers or sushi as the case may be. I don't know. In any case, yes. Let's get into the Scriptures, but before we do, let's have a word of prayer and then we can enjoy the Scriptures and be challenged by the Scriptures as well. Lord, help us as we open Your Word this morning that we will um, be reminded of the purpose for what this text is about. And as we are reminded that we will be reminded of our great salvation that You've brought to us. And that we'll be reminded of the great Savior we have, Jesus Christ. So glorify yourself in our study. Help us to understand this text in its context. And um, well, I pray you'll change our hearts as a result. In your name I pray. Amen. We are in the Sermon on the Mount, again, 27 through 30 this morning. 
Uh, we are continuing our study. I would argue as we work our way into 27 through 30 that, that we will see the theme that we've been seeing up to this point in time continue into this section. I think it will continue all the way through to the end of the chapter at least. I would argue it goes all the way through chapter 7. Um, but certainly it's very strongly, I think, demonstrated in the text we have this morning. Just by way of reminder, in case someone is listening online that hasn't been following up to today, or in case you've forgotten or haven't been here for all the messages, we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount from a very different perspective than, than most times it's presented. I take, I'll be honest with you, I take no joy in talking about a Scripture passage differently than what it is typically presented as. I don't find it pleasurable. I think there's a number of pastors and theologians that actually find pleasure in finding new and different ways of thinking about things in the Scriptures. I think it's a very dangerous place to be and we've got to walk very carefully if we start looking at Scriptures from a different perspective. Um, I, to be honest with you, every time I have felt like or believed, probably a better term, that the Scriptures are saying something different than what we think they are saying, I approach that with much fear and trepidation. We, I mean, let's be honest, we have over 2,000 years of New Testament history, uh, both in the Scriptures as well as extra-biblical church history. Not everything that's been in church history has been good, as we know. Um, as a matter of fact, I would argue the vast majority of church history has not been good. And on top of that, the vast majority of, of church history theologically has not been good. On top of that, I would argue the vast majority of church history biblical interpretation has not been good. Uh, we have played games long, uh, for a long time with the Scriptures, and I think oftentimes we are getting back to, I want to make the Scriptures work for me, for whatever my goals and objectives are, instead of saying, let's let the Scriptures talk and let God tell us what He's trying to communicate with us. And that's what I keep wrestling with trying to do. I'm not saying I always do it perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, but in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse, uh, 5, 6, and 7, sorry, uh, we find, I would argue, something radically different from how it has traditionally been interpreted. Again, just a reminder, the Sermon on the Mount has traditionally been understood as Christ preaching probably His largest, not probably, actually His largest recorded sermon in the entirety of the Scriptures. And He's telling the Jews who are hearers how they need to live. That is typically how it's presented. How they need to live. How they, what they need to do. How they need to think. And obviously, everyone pretty much agrees that this is dramatically tied back to the law. Now, you know, if you've been listening at all, you know I argue that he is not telling uh, the hearers how to live or what to do. Instead, what he's doing is he's giving the bad news of the good news. When I say the good news, I'm talking about the gospel. He's giving the bad news of the gospel. In other words, he's showing them not what they need, or he's telling them not what they need to do, but he's showing them and telling them what they haven't done and how they haven't lived. And therefore, they are, are doomed to only receive the curses of the law. Again, that will continue in 27-30 through 30 and beyond. Let's look at 27-30 through 30 this morning. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that if you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members 
then your whole body go into hell. That's our text this morning. Again, 31 and 32 are connected to this statement because it's all talking about the seventh commandment. Again, we're only going to look at 27 through 30. Uh, you'll notice right off the bat, we're going to wander our way through the text, but you'll notice right off the bat that Jesus says something that He said in 21. In verse 21, He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old. Today, He uses a different phrase, but it means the same thing. You have heard that it was said. It's just a shortened version of what He said before. Saying the same thing. And then He quotes, You shall not commit adultery. So obviously he's quoting, as we just said, from the seventh commandment. You've heard it said that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You should not expect, in hearing this, if you're a Jew in that day, you should not expect to hear from Jesus the next word. And the next word is but. You should not expect that. Because if you're a Jew in Jesus' day, you would expect that if the law is being quoted, it's understood by the quoter and the receiver that what is being quoted is inspired text and from God. Correct? So you would not expect to have the word but come after it. Because the but is given as a contrast or a even almost disagreement with the text. It's almost as if from that statement that Jesus is starting off the text by saying, I disagree. It's almost in first reading, you almost get the sense he's saying, I disagree with the lawgiver. I disagree with God. But what he's really doing in the context is he's saying to the people, I disagree with your understanding. Your understanding is wrong about the text. It's dramatically wrong about the text. The seventh commandment. As we said last week, we find in verse 26, he says, but I say to you, and that saying, I say to you, is a statement that would be said by a judge in declaring something. He would say, I say to you. For example, if you're in a court of law and you are trying to defend yourself, and you're arguing the law, the judge may very well say, I hear what you're saying when you quote blank law, but I say to you, and he's going to go on and do what? Explain something about that law. He's going to explain to who? This is really important. Who will he explain the law to in that case? And he's also what? A law breaker. He's speaking to a law breaker. That's really important in the previous text and this text. As judge, who does a judge speak to but to the lawbreaker? And when he speaks to the lawbreaker, what is he doing? He's declaring how he hasn't done what? Kept the law. Now does it start to make a little more sense what's going on in the text? This is the whole point of the text. This entire sermon is to show that they haven't kept the law. This is exactly what Jesus is going to do. So when you see the word but here, don't think He's going to contradict the text. Instead, remember, He's going to point out to them how they misunderstood the law and therefore didn't keep the law, but, was a, but they're lawbreakers. So that's why He says, you have heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I want to sh- this verse I just read, just verse 27 and 28, there are some things, especially 28, that ought to pop out of the page at you that almost never does to anyone. But there are some statements in verse 28 that should be seen as really radical. And tell us where God's going here, where Jesus is going here, before we even get past 28. Let me give you a couple of them. Notice, first, he says, but I say to you, and when he says you, he's talking about everyone who is there, correct? But I say to you that, what's the next word in your text? Everyone who does something, everyone who does what? Looks at a woman with lustful intent, my, my translation says. Who lusts after a woman. But the, the, we always focus on the lust after a woman part and not the word that is really interesting here. The word that's really interesting here is the word everyone. That's a weird word that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. If Jesus is, is up on the hillside in, in, outside north of Galilee and He's speaking to a vast multitude of people who have been following Him, and He uses the word everyone, it doesn't make any sense on several levels. Number one, and most importantly, it doesn't make any sense if the person that is one of the persons that is receiving this in the multitude isn't married. Because can someone who's not married commit adultery? The answer is yes. Someone who's not married can commit adultery if they have sex with someone who's married. Right? If they have sex with someone who's married, then they're committing adultery, right? If they lust after someone who's, committing, who's, who's, who's married, this text says they're committing adultery as well. Does that mean they get a pass if they're lusting after a single woman? No. He said everyone. So that lumps single males into it as well, doesn't it? Everyone means everyone. It includes a male who is single who is lusting after a single woman. Wait, that doesn't make sense. How is that adultery? This is where this text becomes really interesting. That's not adultery in anybody's book. If if I'm single and I'm lusting after a single female, that's not lust, that's not that's lust, but that's not adultery in any book, is it? There's no marriage there anywhere. Now, what people some people have done to try to work this into the text is, well, but you may be married at some point in time, and the girl you're lusting after maybe maybe married sometime, and so you're committing adultery against the future marriage. And I'm like, what? What? That doesn't make any sense. So what is he talking about here? The key is the word everyone. And what, what is that a key about? Because what we're talking about so far doesn't make any sense now, does it? Here's what Jesus is really doing. When he says in verse 28, But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
the word everyone is a clue to us that really Jesus isn't talking about adultery physically. Or he's not talking, to put it a different way, he's not talking about adultery horizontally. He's using adultery to drive a greater point home. And it's very important we get this because also, here's another problem. If there's a multitude there, there's probably going to be males there, right? But there's probably going to be what there? There's probably going to be women there too. Do women lust? Yes. Women lust too. But he only talks about men, right? But then we got the word everyone. So it gets confusing again. So what's really going on here? It's very important we understand this. I would argue what Jesus is doing is he's using <clears throat> adultery to drive a greater point home. Now, what grounding do I have for that? Because the Scriptures do it all the time. Throughout, especially the Old Testament, but even the New Testament. Adultery is used for something much greater than just physical adultery, male to female. In the Old Testament, God regularly through His prophets talks about adultery and has nothing to do with sexual. What is He talking about? He's talking about adultery against Him. And He talks about adultery in a variety of ways. He talks about adultery sexually, but He describes it as against Him. He talks about adultery with regard to idolatry. And it's idolatry is the adultery against him. Well, how is that adultery against God? Because you're lusting after something other than God, but drilling behind that, why does God speak about it as adultery? Here's the reason why. Because the relationship that the children of Israel had with their God was called a covenantal relationship. It was a covenant between God and man, between God and the Israelites. And that covenant between God and man was pictured in 